so we're not too worried there but there's other people that when that comes up that's going to be a problem and i see that soon i see that coming feels like 2023 i think 2024 but then also i don't know if there's going to be loan workouts for those properties or not um so that's the other thing you're listening to ice cream with investors a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. All right, Charles, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me on today, Matt. Absolutely. Well, you know we like to start with the difficult questions here. What's your favorite <laughs> ice cream? I would say um, I would say cookie dough. I love that. Okay. Okay. I had some good cookie dough the other day. Um, I'm trying <laughs> to remember where I had it now, but it was cookie dough and a mix of like chocolate chunks, so it was amazing. Oh, wow. That's the best yeah. of both worlds right there. Yeah, yeah. Now, with cookie dough, do you feel like you need to add any kind of toppings on them, or are you just straight-up cookie dough? Do I need to? I mean, no, of course. But, I mean, I, any type of sprinkles or M&Ms, mm -hmm. Reese's, anything like that, you throw it right on top, I mean, I'll do it. Um, any, anything like that, you add a little bit more color in there, yeah, on top. I mean, anything like that, especially when it gets yeah. a little melted more, and then you can, like, yes. you know. <laughs> yeah, it's like a cookie dough milkshake at that point. There you go, there you go. Well, tell our listeners, what's the scoop? What do you do today? So um, I am a real estate syndicator. I've been involved with real estate um, myself as an investor since 2006 in multifamily properties. And uh, I grew up in a multifamily investing family. My dad um, purchased his first multifamily property. It was a six family. Um, it was like a D, C minus property. And that was like, uh, it was like 1984. It was a few months after I was born. So uh, elementary school, my whole process started of going, my dad self-managed all his own properties and he bought um, several more buildings after that one, some with a partner, some without. And um, so that was my second education growing up was going to properties and, you know, D-class properties aren't the sexiest properties ever. And they were, they were in tougher neighborhoods. He had a couple that were better. They were in C-class areas, but the D-class ones took a lot of time and they were just like management intensive. He had superintendents that like handled stuff, but it was just like all the issues you had to deal with and um they're really tough properties but you learn a lot about dealing with people dealing with contractors everything you know all the different moving parts that anybody that's ever invested in multifamily especially knows about where where were those properties so i'm originally from connecticut and these are in a um i'm from a small town called avon and these are about uh, 20 minutes away in a city small city called new britain outside gotcha. Hartford. Gotcha. And now, was that your dad's like main job, or did he have another job and just had this on the side? What, what did that look like? My dad was actually uh, my dad was actually a like tech ed art teacher, and uh, he okay. left that a couple years after I was born, um, late eighties, and he went full into real estate. And he was in it like um, he was doing everything from. Um, he was building back then half million dollar houses. He was had this rental portfolio. He had, uh, and then he would do flips here and there. So he was uh, your all around real estate investor type guy. And uh, but when like the pullback in like you know early nineties happened, it was it was tough. You know what I mean? Every pretty much every one of my dad's partners uh, went bankrupt, and uh, my dad didn't. But because um, he had one of his partners, he's like just he's like just do the guy was like you know one of his partners because. You get real estate developers, some of them can be kind of slimy. And he was just like, he was like, oh, just do bankruptcy. You know, you'll get, you know, whatever. Like, don't pay these people back, blah, blah, blah. And my dad actually paid everybody back. And it's like, um, he never went bankrupt. And, uh, you know, he just like, it was like, you know, he's like, you just got to keep in touch with people you owe money to. And you got it all sorted out. And, uh, but that rental portfolio, that was what, 
you know, save the day bringing it through because that was consistent income. And um, they were very cash, they were very heavy cash flow properties. So that kind of like brought, kept everything moving during those slow times in the early 90s before he started flipping houses again. Yeah, I always find it interesting when um, people come on the show and their family is uh, entrepreneur or comes from a real estate background. I think most of our listeners know I have a five and seven year old, so it's always something that I'm interested in. Like, how do I teach them a little bit about what I do and all those sorts of things? But so I've got I've got a lot of questions on that. But before we kind of get into those questions, I'm just curious, why did he leave his teaching role to go pursue real estate? Did you guys ever talk about that? Um, uh, my, my, my whole family on my dad's side is like all entrepreneurs and like I'm okay. following in that route. So my dad's father, uh, started an insurance agency, which his, um, my uncle took over and grew that to like five or 6,000 clients. And, um, my cousins took it over and sold it. Um, but it was, um, so it was all entrepreneur on that side of the family. And that's really how it, it's, uh, they've all been entrepreneurs. So at some point, and, uh, my brother and I are both entrepreneurs. I'm a lifelong entrepreneur, um, never having a W2. So, um, it was, uh, like a, a real W2, uh, during or after college. And, um, so it was just something that was kind of normal for us to, um, you know, be around, like you're starting businesses, you're taking risks. There's all, I mean, all different types of stuff. This, and my dad got attacked a couple of times by the shiny penny kind of thing. You know what I mean? <laughs> And um, I see that now when I look back on it and I see it, but he really honed his focus in on real estate. And um, when he did that, he was, he, you know, he did the best. And when he kind of like spread a little bit, that's when like, you know, that's when he, you just have stuff that wasn't, uh, didn't make money. I can confirm that the shiny penny definitely mm -hmm. beats your butt. It, it, it hits hard. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, so he got into that. So talk us through like, what, did, what was that experience like growing up as a child with your father? Were you going to his site visits? Were you doing any of the rehabs? Like what did all that look like? So my dad, one thing my dad did, my dad never did, my dad was pretty handy, but my dad never did, um, when I was like, uh, able to remember, he never did any of the repairs on the properties. He always had someone doing that. And he would always like, uh, have that set up with someone like handyman. It was always different handyman. Um, he had super set up superintendents at the buildings. And, um, so when he showed up and he probably showed up a couple times a week to different properties and, um, he, you know, he'd be picking up the last of rents, picking up people that were late on rent, um, you know, dealing with, uh, all types of issues, whether it's just like, uh, paying people to advertise some of his apartments back then it was like putting flyers up. So he'd pay some of the kids in the building, uh, money to go put flyers up and he had like a whole system of putting them high. So people don't rip them off and all this type of stuff. So, you know, that was the bag, you know, you didn't have the internet doing it. And he had like an application and a lease that was like one page, <laughs> which is like unheard of today. And, uh, like a simple stuff like that. And, uh, he had like coin operated washing machines in the bottom of the units and, and the, pro and the basements, this is up North. So they had basements and, um, you would be like, uh, they'd get broken into. So we had them change where it had to be tokens and they had to buy them from him. So he had like this coffee container like this, like two of them, one with all keys, which was just like insane amount of keys for every apartment and this like old van he had. And then he had another one which had these tokens. And he's like, he was just hoping that people didn't realize that he could use Chuck E. Cheese tokens in the machines too. Uh. But, I, but no one broke into them anymore after that. So like, it was like, you know, people come to him, they're buying tokens. Uh, I'm running up and down the stairs sometimes like, you know, sweeping, I'm always, my job was always sweeping stairs. It was terrible. Three floors down all the way, you're sweeping everything down. And, uh, and then it was also just running up and down the stairs, dropping off receipts. Back in the day, carbon copy receipts. So he'd go up, hey, you know, knock on like whatever, whatever, run the, you know, get, they're going to give you cash. Just tell them it's Charlie's son, run the money back down here. 
I'm going to give you a receipt. You run it back up. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so that was my job. And then I, and then I uh, counted all the rent after we collected it. And he'd give me $1 for that. And I wrote every time, no matter how much it wow. was. So <laughs> well, child labor laws were not in effect back then because $1 to do all of that stair climbing alone is, is uh, a little underpaid. Yeah. Um, what do what do you think that like instilled in you though? Because uh, obviously you got into real estate, and obviously you become an entrepreneur, and never really held a W two. Like, talk us through your your mindset or, around how that that shaped your mindset. I guess uh, you have the freedom, but since my dad was more on, he would never hire the third party property manager. It'd be too difficult for D class properties anyway. But if he went to better properties, that would be one way he'd have more true freedom but the thing was that um you know you have the freedom as the entrepreneur but you're always uh, you're always kind of working you know what i mean it's not like um you know we this was a we go down there saturday mornings it wasn't like this was a you know nine to five five day a week type of thing so um but he never missed any of my sports games or anything like that or anything i had going on any activities at school or boy scouts or anything like that it was never missed so that was a huge benefit that you see but also you also see like working on the weekends and stuff like that which other people in my neighborhood of uh, you know professionals, they probably didn't do that. You know what I mean? So your doctor and your attorney probably aren't working on Saturday, every Saturday. So it's um, that's a you know so there's you learn about that the hard work that goes into being self-employed, and then also um, you know he he was very good at dealing with people um, that owed him money or collecting rent rent from money or dealing with contractors. Um, my dad was a negotiator. I mean so you dealing with people contractors doing roofs on stuff. Um, I remember he beat down this roofer so bad on pricing, and the guy was like, you know what? You don't even have to give me a deposit to start work because I know cause you negotiate so hard you're going to pay me. <laughs> so it was like, you know, it was that, and it was just he was uh, – you had to keep expenses down on those type of properties. So it was, you know, I was like, hey, why'd you ever, like, why don't you fix it? He's like, you can't fix it. You can't do this. Like, you know, you have to do, like, this is just how it is in these properties. And yep. um, that's just, like, the problem is, and that's what I love about getting into better properties because – I can actually go in there and you're like, oh, I can do like counters and I can do cabinets and like make this actually like a nice place and like the numbers work out, you know what I mean? But you can't do that in lower class properties. So it's just a very difficult thing. And, you know, collecting rent from people that don't have that much money is also difficult too, being the landlord. And um, we would sometimes go door to door, collect rent in his uh, wire bound carbon copy book. And he'd go in each apartment, he'd sit down at the coffee t- or a kitchen table write up receipts, talk to the people for a few minutes and leave. And I would stand behind him. And like, I never did that when I clicked at rent, you know, when I self-managed, it was like in the, I'd never went to the apartments really. It was like, give me money at the door. You know, I sign, I give him a receipt, blah, 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 those cash um, back when, you know, we did that. Um, and, uh, but I never went into apartments and like sat down and like chit chat with them, you know, for a few minutes. Yeah. But he was very good with dealing with people and, um, you know, you know, all the type of stuff that goes with it when you're, it's everything's a negotiation when you get into lower class properties. It's very rare, you know, the lower the property goes that you're going to have people paying you on the due date. You know what I mean? It's like you get a little bit this month and then he'd be like, Hey, you know, can you give me something now? Can you give me something later? How about next? So next Friday we're on for like this amount here and stuff like that. And I think my, my dad was a very nice guy. So uh, it's stuff that I didn't let slide when I was, you know, I didn't let that stuff slide when I became a landlord, but um, you know, it's different personalities a little bit. Yeah, maybe he just brought you along so that they would feel sorry for him. Like, hey, I've got a family too. I know money is tight, but I also have a family that I'm trying to feed through this as well. Yeah, I, I would. I would hope that my dad was that savvy. I don't know. That, that's yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah. Your dad kind of sounds a lot like mine. So my dad was entrepreneur through and through. I think he's only had really two jobs in his entire life. Um, but he's always the one that when he sits down at a bus stop or um, we're off running around doing something together as a family and he's just sitting there, we'll chat it up with the next person next to him. And yeah. he likes the art of the deal more than anything. Like he's always trying to strike a deal, whether it's selling some of our old toys still or um, – negotiating on uh, a building or, or a car or anything like that. He just loves the art of the deal. Yeah, yeah. It's it's something that uh, not so much today because now they set up everything where you don't really negotiate anymore for like cars and stuff. It's really like a set price. But that's why these, you know, I don't know. I don't know how he buys a car anymore, but uh, it's probably very difficult. It's not any fun anymore. Yeah, yeah. So where did your real estate journey begin? Obviously, you kind of working for the dad, saw some of the real estate stuff. You uh, were able to save up your dollar a week salary to go buy a multi-million dollar apartment complex or where, where did, what was your first property? Yeah. So when I got out of college in 06, um, terrible time to buy property, but I bought my first property, which was a three family back. Now we call it house hacking, but back then it was just living in one unit, renting out the other two it was a three family. Um, it was about a mile and a half from the college that I'd rent in the same city where my dad had properties, but on a whole different side of it. That was, um, you know, a, a much more solid C-class place. Um, uh, so with that being said, that was kind of where I started. And that was a little heavier of a renovation than I should have been taking on at, at that age. And with that, my experience I had, because my dad was really like a arm's length mentor on that. He'd give me names of people and then I'd bring stuff to him and he'd tell me like what to do. Um, he's, you know, like dealing with tenants, he tell you, you know, kind of like, Hey, this is what you have to do, or this is what you should do. And this is, you know, this is, you have to do this and stuff like that. Or if you do this, you're going to get in the trouble. <laughs> so, you know what I mean? So all this type of stuff, you know, but it wasn't like he was there, you know, negotiating or paying people for work. So it was, um, that was a new experience. And then, um, I got that all taken care of a couple of years and at the end of 08, completely different from the time, uh, in the market from the end of 06. And I purchased another three family like literally a block and a half away, which was a fantastic property. And um, and then a couple of years later, I got involved with um, commercial properties because I was in the, the GFC. And I mean, it was just like, if you're buying commercial properties, they, they couldn't give them away, literally. I mean, it was just like, because there's no financing for them. So there's only yeah. so many people that had money and there was, there was no bridge lenders really. There's hard money lenders were not interested in properties that they couldn't, you couldn't resell in like a year, which was exactly commercial properties. Unless you had something that could go for FHA, you know, one to four unit. They weren't financing that. Yeah, I've heard you talk a little bit about that. I uh, was not involved in real estate at that time period, but uh, I've heard you talk a little bit about like cash is king at that time and um, how money is so fluid these days and so liquid that you can borrow even to this day in the choppy times that we're in up to at least 65% LTV. Yeah. Whereas back then, I think I heard you say that you tried to uh, refinance a deal and they were basically giving you 10, 10% on your ARV or something like that. So yeah. what, what was it like back then? It was exactly what you just said. I mean, it's just you learn how much I learned much more when I look back on it and not when you're really into it, but you learn how important the financing is to real estate. It's like a it's your biggest partner. And everybody says that and it's kind of cliche, but it's completely true. And think about from what happened in 05, where you had people that had like no income buying like three $500,000 houses, right? And then compared to um, literally at the end of 08, and I had to sign away my whole, like, this was like Obama did something where, like, you get some tax credit or something to buy a house, and he was like, yeah. whatever it was to, like, someone to buy a house, please, someone buy a house. And, uh, I mean, you know, and you had to sign away all this stuff because they are so worried about fraud back then with the Dodd-Frank stuff, and it just was coming around. And um, it was like, you know, it was a completely different ballgame. And you saw how everything tightened up. 
and um, you know people were just um, kind of scrambling. A lot of real estate investors. And a lot of people that worked in real estate in 06 were gone in 08. So that was another big thing that you saw, like um, agents. Um, I had a really good um, mortgage broker in 06. He was still around. He had a really good be- uh, book of business. But like inspectors, all that stuff, all gone, all gone, not in the business anymore. Everybody had to be new that I found when I was buying in 08, especially in 2009. They were all gone by then. It was just so – it's amazing like how, how many people got destroyed in that, but also the people that – made it through were the ones that had like long-term debt. And I'm not talking like 30 year debt. You can't really get that on commercial properties, but like, you know, five, seven, 10 year debt. And they're able to weather the storm going through, you know, if you bought something, it was still cash flowing. You could still pay your bills from 05. And, you know, you were, you know, by your word, you could, you know, you could make it out and you probably could refinance that in 2010, 2011 without too much of a problem. You know what I mean? Especially maybe you have to bring a little cash to the table. Um, but, you know, stuff started opening up around then. So it just goes to show you that, you know, the longer you own property, the longer financing is, it dramatically reduces your risk. And it's not sexy. Everybody wants to do what we were doing for years here in the last three or four years buy double money in three years, buy double money in three years. And then when people are like, wait, hold on, we're keeping it for more than three years. And uh, yeah, this isn't a 20% return. You know, so it's like, um, you know, it's, 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 you have to come back to like reality of what it was. Yeah, my, uh, I bought my first primary home in 2010. And speaking to the tax credit at the time, it was a three and a half percent FHA. So I ended up putting like $7,000 down or $8,000 down or something like that and ended up getting $9,000 back from the government because I bought a house. Um, so I'm like, Oh, wow, this is this is great. I should buy a house every year. Um, now I kind of look back on it and wish I would have, but at that same time, like, you know, didn't have, a it was, exp- I mean, yeah, 2010, 2011. That's, I was talking to someone like the other day and it was like, it was like when you went through 08 and 09, when he came to 20, you know, 2012 came around, you're like, this is expensive. Like wh- who's buying it? You know what I mean? Like you, had, yeah. because you just, that was the mentality of like what we had just gone through. And you're like, people, who's really buying these properties are putting up this huge, I mean, it was, you know, and now it's completely crazy compared to that, but you just don't, when you see it for so many years, like we, you get really used to, like we were just saying, the three-year selling and stuff like that. You got really used to people not buying and selling properties and properties being vacant and uh, no one being able to afford them. Yeah. Yeah. I remember we flipped a property in 14 months uh, in 2021. And I mean, it was dagdum near 2x equity multiple. I think we wow. went 1.75 or 1.8 or something like that. And everybody always like, that's the first question an investor asks you is like, what's your track record? And I'm like, if you want me to be honest with you, it's going to sound great. But I will also <laughs> tell you that the past three years were just phenomenal for us. So I don't think that's no. fair either. So yeah, that you, I always got to caveat that when you talk to people because you're like, oh, because then they and yeah, they expect it, and it's yeah. very difficult to, you know, you were smart, but also you weren't, you know, you you also just you know you you were in this market and you're in the water and you caught the wave that was there, you know what I mean? Yep. Yeah. And I I think that's the point of uh, what you said earlier. Real estate is a get rich slow scheme um, in the sense of you just have to be playing the game. And um, I had somebody on the podcast one time that said, if you just buy one house a year for 10 years, then it will change the trajectory of your wealth Mm -hmm. in your in your lifetime. Um, So it's not a difficult business to be in as long as you buy right, buy for cash flow, and then you're not forced to sell. Time is the only time if you're forced to sell real estate is the only time you're really forced to lose money. Yeah. But the problem is that most people want, you know, they want something that's going to triple 110 extra yeah. money and in no time, they're not going to wait the 10 years. So yeah. Crypto kitty money. <laughs> Have you seen dumb money yet? The movie? No, no, nah, it's on my list. It's about the meme stocks of 2022. So 
2020, whatever it was. Um, so you started getting into commercial family, like talk us through what does your portfolio look like today? Yeah, so over the last uh, year and a half, uh, like we were talking about before, we've sold six properties out of our portfolio. So right now we have about um, 800 units under management. Um, and then we have, um, I'm a passive investor in thousands of units, but it's just for our general partner stuff, it's about it's about 800 units that uh, we have now. Because, you know, we start selling um, at the beginning of, um, really at the end of 2021, early 2022, we sold some of our properties that we had already on the market. And we start marketing one in the end of 2021 and sold in the uh, in 2022. So, um, you know, just like going through as we hit um, our productions and um, we started taking money off the table for our investors. And, um, you know, you said some of those investors that didn't want to do it and they're like kind of pushing back, which, you know, it's our decision what we do. But we are, you know, at this time, obviously, no one complained after they got their money back. Um, once they saw the rest, you know, S&P going to 3600, they were lucky that, you know, happy that they got their money back from you know, their deal that wasn't sitting out there for another couple of years. Yeah, where where are those uh, properties located? The eight hundred units. Yeah, so we have that uh, that split up between uh, Florida um, and uh, so Tampa, Atlanta, Dallas. Got it. Got it. Those are our three how are, markets. How are you seeing insurance rates right now in Tampa and in Florida? It's insane. Um, I know our Dallas property is about four ninety a unit a year, um, and like in Florida, it's more than twice that some of the times. So. It's a difficult time. We've when we look at numbers, we we're not really pushing it too much to um, to buy right now in Florida unless it really checks a lot of boxes because it's. I don't think we've seen the end of it, and our insurance our insurance rates for just primary residential is up forty two percent. I read like a day ago over a year from twenty twenty two. So I don't think that's ending, and I don't know when that's going to level off. Um, it's going to be something with inflation, I would imagine. But Florida has a, we have a big issue down here with litigation against insurance companies. I read another fact, it was like, um, this is a few months ago, that 86% of litigation against um, insurance companies comes from our great state here of Florida. So it's just like, um, yeah, it's just, there's a, there has to be a lot of reform down here. And I think those two things put together are storm. And we haven't even talked about storms yet. So, yeah. you know, the cost of the storms, you know, so you have storms, then you have the cost of the storms, which keeps on getting more expensive, harder to find people to work. And then you've got the litigation uh, component against it really makes Florida a difficult place for the insurance. Everything else is very friendly. So our property taxes are very friendly for having a no income tax state. And, um, and we have tons of growth down here. That's not an issue at all. It's just a, you know, it's, it's everything. Our insurance is something that's very difficult to manage right now. How do you, how do you underwrite that then? Just go higher. I mean, like I, when I see underwriting that comes through and, um, the days of 3% are done. I mean, it increases in expenses and increases in insurance. I mean, that has to be high single digits. That has to be, you know, double digits in times. And you have to see that if you're, what your pricing is actually like in, in Texas, they have issues with property taxes. So you have to know that when I'm buying that property, is this been, you know, is this my cap rate in return? Are these the numbers with these new, with these new tax rates that are coming come through? And the same thing is in Florida, or is this going to be the returns that you know we're going to be seeing um, with the insurance? Because I mean, insurance obviously is a lot smaller of a expense versus like your debt service per se, but it's still a very expensive thing that you just yeah. can't get rid of no matter what, however you finance it. You know what I mean? So it is something that's very important and it's something that uh, I don't see 
I, I don't see we've we've gone through it yet. And there's people. I mean, I have friends down here. Um, down here, uh, I live in Palm Beach Gardens. So, you know, I have friends down here that live five miles from the coast, and they can only get our state-run citizens insurance on their house. You know what I mean? And it's like it's like five figures. It's you know what I mean for a house that's probably like a million dollars. So it's just like it's a lot of insanity with that, and I just don't think that's ended yet. So it's like when you're doing your numbers in areas like this, it's just. You just got to pump them up more. And that's why we haven't found stuff that pencils, which is fine with me. You know what I mean? I don't want to be penciling something that says, oh, it's going to be 1000 or 1200 or whatever. You know what I mean? And then it comes back and it's you know, 1500 1600 yeah. You know what I mean? You just that's, – that's just a, a, an amateur mistake where you just have to really sharpen it. And, and then when it does you know, come back to earth and you start seeing it and these numbers are priced in with the new insurance that comes through, then it's something. But just make sure if you are buying in Florida or anywhere, anywhere, because insurance rates have gone crazy. I have, I have properties before I sold them up north. 10% I was getting, 8 10% increases a year on. So it's not just Florida. We just get a huge brunt down here. But just get – don't rely on brokers, which we, everybody always knows. But you know, get your own quotes and have your own person look at taxes. You know what I mean? That knows – how to estimate them correctly. Cause these are your two big, your two big things. Yeah. So I, I think I heard like eight to 10%. Is that the general rule of thumb or number you're using right now? Yeah, that's, that's what I want to see. I mean, if, if I'm having, if it depends on what insurance number I'm using, if I'm using the quote I just got, um, that might be something we're going to use, right? If it's something that uh, we're looking at it quickly and it's what a broker's telling me, it's going to be a little higher. You know what I mean? Without me pulling our own quote, because I just obviously, you know, you're not reviewing that whole policy and it's probably not the policy that you really want. So it's just, um, you have to just know going in that, um, he's, it's, it's, uh, to pull your own numbers and to verify them in your underwriting and then stick to them. You know what I mean? This is not time to start sharpening the pencil for deals. Yeah. Where, where does it not make sense? So obviously Florida is a huge high growth market right now ton of migration, ton of jobs, all those sorts of things, things that you want to see. Um, but ultimately like the insurance problem, I think is a pretty big problem because 42% in one year is huge. I don't think you're seeing that across your portfolio, but when you start having large insurance providers back out of the state and then yeah. your for, your only option is really either to pay it or self-insure, like that's a difficult position to be in. Maybe not while you're operating it as much as when you go try to sell it. So I'm just curious, like, I mean, when does it not make sense? Hey, fellow investors, before we dive into our next segment of the show, I wanted to take a quick moment to talk to you about a fantastic opportunity for you to invest with me. As you know, here at Ice Cream with Investors, I'm passionate about real estate investing and helping you navigate the exciting world of wealth creation through real estate. And that's why for the first time, I'm thrilled to tell you about an opportunity for you to invest alongside of me. Over the past three years, I've been investing in multifamily, mobile home parks, car washes. I've even become the bank and lent out money to fellow real estate investors on a short-term basis. And now you can come join me. If you'd like to jump on a call and learn more about this opportunity, head to icecreamwithinvestors.com slash invest and find a time for us to connect. And now back to the show. It, well, it's, it's, I mean, if you, if you can't make sure that you're having, if you can't verify that you're going to be able to have these expenses uh, covered by increases in rent, I mean, it's just your value add is just not going to work. And you have people that are going in like we were before. I mean, there's still people going in buying. We were talking about a property we sold in Tampa before the call, before they started. And, you know, it was just one of those things that we're selling at, we sold at a very low cap rate, lower than what the person's financing. So they have that negative cap rate. And so there's still people buying that. And there's still people that are currently buying with uh, the same thing with insurance, right? Um, hoping that it's going to, you know, it's going to come around. Yeah. And if 
you know, if you're in a main market, if you're in like a major market like Tampa, um, Greater Tampa, which is huge, Orlando, which has some of the highest rent growth in the country right now, um, uh, or some place in the southeast, uh, you know, you, you'll probably be able to weather that storm a little better. But you start getting out into like tertiary markets, I mean, you're just you're you're done because you're just yeah. not going to get those rent increases, no matter how beautiful your property is, because you're you're just not getting them. So that's going to be a problem, you know, when when you're looking at properties. Make sure that the comps you're using for rents um, are are accurate. When you went to sell the property in Tampa, was it like a sovereign wealth fund? Was it a big PE firm? Was it a syndicator? Like who who was the buyer at a, a net deficit on cap rate versus their loan? An investor out of Brooklyn <laughs> yeah. that had bought properties from us before, um, a year before we had we literally bought like almost like a like a portion of a neighborhood over like three years. So in this area of Tampa, North Tampa, uh by US USF. And um so when we purchased it, we purchased literally like, uh, you know, we purchased one property. We purchased a whole bunch of like three and fours around it, uh, well, you know, unit properties. Then we bought this one, which was like had two parts to it. And so there was a lot of stuff. And so he wanted to, for him, he was self-managing them. Um, you know, not the best manager apparently because he would call our management company there a year afterwards. His tenants would call looking for stuff, stuff to get fixed that he wasn't fixing. Uh, and they're like, no, we don't, we don't have managers for a year. Sorry. Yeah. And so, but you know, it's, so that's how he's keeping his costs down, not managing them. And, um, but it is what it is. So it's just one of those things that, um, you just, he wanted to, if he could, maybe he worked out the numbers where he thinks that he can get these rents up over so many time. He doesn't mind biting this in between, you know what I mean? Um, yep. covering that cost. And then also, um, for his management costs, I imagine he's penciled that in that he can get it even lower. So, um, that's one thing like, Hey, let me add on, you know, hundred units here, hundred units there. And, uh, now I can get this cost much lower because he's got the whole area. Uh, it's much easier to manage, uh, you know, 500 units, let's say, or whatever he has in that area, um, that are a few blocks from each other than driving yep. from one side and that side back and forth. Yeah. And I think as you build out a portfolio, it's, it's smart to look at your portfolio that way from a geographic standpoint. Mm -hmm. If you're going to be an individual investor, then try to pick one or two cities where you're just going to kind of go all yeah. in on. Uh, obviously, when you start doing some bigger apartments and things like that, it's, it's harder to do that. But uh, ultimately, if you're a small time investor, just wanting to grab 10 properties, 20 properties, something like that, then having them all densely located will help not only management, but help you from a portfolio sales standpoint as well. That's, that's exactly true. What what are you guys looking at right now? Where are you looking at buying? Uh, so our main three markets that we work with, um, with our how our process, our company is set up here at Harborside is what we do is we have a we work with four different operators um, throughout markets that we've really pinpointed here in the southeast, which is Dallas, Greater Atlanta, and then the I four corridor, which we call here in Florida, which is between Jacksonville and Tampa goes right through Orlando. And these are the areas where we really focus, where we've seen growth, um, where we've been successful and, um, you know, really checks the boxes for us, which is, uh, you know, increase in population. Everybody knows job growth. Everybody knows, but, uh, we want diversity of that job growth. Um, we also like to see a decrease in all these numbers over a 20 year period. We want to see now also a decrease in crime over that 20 year period consistently. And, uh, maybe there's some bumps here or there, but, Really, that just 
just shows you how much money is being invested back into that community. And that's a that is a stat as you you know you're nodding your head, but many I think novice uh, investors pass over that. They look at the they look at oh what's the population went up oh great well if you're in Naples, Florida, are these people coming for jobs? No, or like Marco Island, or these are all like old retire wealthy retirees. They're not renting your apartments. You know what I mean? There's not like a huge like you know educated. No. Uh, population there that's going there for like a new tech startup or whatever. So you have to know about the, that there's jobs coming along with it, but you also want to know that the place is getting better that you're investing into. You know what I mean? Over a long period of time that there's been, you know, there's there's a, you know, that means that the city's like really put a, uh, there's a vision for that city or that MSA that, hey, we're going to make this, this, you know, this is going to be the next wave of the future because we're investing all this money in, not just, oh, we'll just lock up everybody and then our stats will go down and then four years it'll go back up. So, yeah, no, uh, I think uh, to your point around Naples, like a lot of retirees moving there, they're not renting really apartments, all those sorts of things. Like that's yeah. how I think about Boise. A lot of people moved to Boise during the pandemic, yeah. but there weren't native reasons why they were doing that other than to get out of XYZ state that they were in. Let's call it California. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For it's like Jackson Hole. I love Jackson Hole, but it's one of those things. Is you're like, I mean, is there business? I mean, there's a lot of hospitality there, stuff like that. But right. like, you know, some guy buying a seventy acre ranch isn't going to isn't going to help me with my rent prices downtown. You know what I mean? Right, right. So as a guy that has gone through a couple decades here in the real estate cycle, uh, specifically in two thousand eight and at the beginning of your career, like, how are you thinking about twenty twenty four right now? Are you net buyer? Are you a net sideline watcher? Like, wh where where's your position right now going into twenty twenty four? Yeah, um, I always want to be a net buyer. That's my my goal is always to be looking to buy. And uh, even you know, right now we have some partners that are kind of sitting on the sidelines, um, but. Um, you know, we, we're still looking at deals, not as many as we were before this year has really slowed down. Q1 was okay. Q2 and Q3, it's like a ghost town with deals. Um, so, which is fine. People are wondering what's happening and we just want to keep on looking at deals. And uh, if we see some of the pencils, we'll pull the trigger. Um, I think, you know, we had people that were smart enough to do rate caps, um, interest rate caps, you know, back, back prior to, rates going up, usually we're doing two-year caps because the three-year usually doubled the price between, you know what I mean, from a two-year to a three-year. So I think most people did two years, we did two years. And um, if any of those properties are going to come up, they're going to be coming up now or they're going to be coming up, you know, it's going to be sometime mid-next year. Um, but I don't know truly what issues. I mean, we have one right now that's coming up mid next year or early next year in 2024, and we're not going to have any issue refinancing it. We were able to push our NOI. We didn't overly leverage it, stuff like this. We had a cap in place that we've been putting away money for for a while. So it's not going to be a problem, and uh, we can refinance it with uh, debt, or we can just uh, refinance it with five-year debt or so, uh, or sell it. And so we're not too worried there, but there's other people that when that comes up, that's going to be a problem, and I see that soon. I see that coming. People said 2023. I think 2024. But then also, I don't know if there's going to be loan workouts for those properties or not. Um, so that's the other thing. Yeah, I mean, we were. I was up in New York earlier this week talking to some lenders, and the one message that I took away from my conversations with them were, "Hey, look, everybody's broken their covenants right now." Uh, no one is compliant with their debt service coverage ratios. No one's in, in compliance with their uh, LTVs, all those sorts of things. Um, and the centralized message was, and that's okay. We are not mad about that. 
what we are, what we, where we get upset is when we get caught off guard, when we get caught off surprise, when you call me and say, Hey, I just spent my last uh, remaining cash reserve and my next debt payments in 30 days. And I, I, I've already done a capital call once I've got nothing left. Um, so I think that's kind of the message I took away was that if you're in this business and you're worried of the fact that your loan is upside down or it looks tricky, um, most of the lenders out there are willing to be flexible because they also have a ton of that stuff in their portfolio right now. And they're not in the real estate operating business. Yeah. They don't want to own apartment complexes all over the country. So they're more willing to work with you, extend terms, renegotiate terms, things like that to keep you as a paying lender, uh, borrower versus taking over the property and foreclosing on it. I, I, yeah. I would love to hear your opinion from some of the conversations you've had, but th that's just recent on my mind. Yeah, I, to I totally agree with that. And I also, it's going to depend on the on your property you have too. And I'm a big per, uh, person that's thinking about that too, is the grade of the property. I feel, and these are all opinions, obviously. I don't know anything uh, versus what I've read and my experience. But it's like, if if there if you have a lender that's got debt on a, let's just say a C-class property built in the 60s, and it hasn't held up and it hasn't done this, and it's going to be many years, right? They might just foreclose on that and sell it at a loss and be done with it versus maybe someone that has better property that comes along and they're having a an issue with with that servicing um this might be something where they might do the workout and you know uh sort of speak kick the can down the road a little bit um because they did this a lot in 2010 with people's personal residences i know i had a couple contractors that had this and literally i looked at the paperwork and it was really changing 30-year paperwork to giving a brand new loan for 40 years you know what i mean here's the payment, this is what you pay. Like it couldn't be any easier and simpler. It, like no yep. one was trying to trick anything. They were just trying to kick the can down the road. I know this is what they're saying behind the doors is just like, hey, this person, values are gonna come back at some point, this person's gonna sell it and we're gonna be able to break even, you know, whatever. We're not gonna lose money and spend um, tens of thousands of dollars, you know, to a single family house for closing in the whole nine yards. So I feel that is something that maybe some of these banks are thinking about that if they just, um, they can, you know, they can work with it and um, maybe extend your term a little bit, maybe not increase, maybe cut their spreads a little bit, all this kind of stuff to work together to keep you compliant with that debt. And then at some point down the road, you're going to find someone that will come around and buy that property because they will keep on going. I mean, 2023 has been a difficult year for rent increases because we've had so many over the last years before, if you're down in one of these hot markets that we're talking about. But if you were in... Um, but I mean, it's one of those things is that I think 2024, these are these rent increases are going to continue again. You know what I mean? With everything we've been talking about, we're talking about taxes, insurance, I mean, cost of labor is uh, very expensive. I mean, it's not what it used to be. Your handyman are $35 an hour. I mean, it's just like, it's, you know, it's, uh, it's very expensive for getting people to do work at properties. And uh, so it's one of those things that that has to come out at some point too. Yep. Agreed. Agreed. Well, Charles, fantastic conversation. I want to switch this now to our last round. We're calling this the four toppings. Our first one is what is your favorite book or what is a book you've read recently that's given you a paradigm shift? I think one of my favorite books and one of the ones I always uh, suggest to people is the 80-20 principle by Richard Koch. I think it's, that's how you pronounce the last name, uh, K-O-C-H. And it's just a great book on anything, especially if you're in sales, because it just tells you about um, any part of your life. It tells you to break it down, see where you see results. And funny enough, it's going to be important. Uh, there's going to be a proportion where it's going to be 
80% approximately is going to be getting, you know, gets you only 20% and 20% gets you approximately 80% of your returns, which when you look at it, it's one of those things where you put down the book and just think about it because it's, it's mind altering. So that's a great book. Yeah. hundred percent. Our second one is what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Um, I think best, um, best piece of advice I've received, um, for real estate, I think it was buying property in better areas. And that was a game changer. It was, you know, paying more for properties. And uh, I wouldn't say overpaying, no one wants to hear that. But it's really you're paying you're paying for better properties, because they're going to cash flow better, easier to manage, and they're going to appreciate faster. Yeah. And I think like uh, Warren Buffett talks about his investment journey was, you know, finding these, where can I go get the last puff off a cigar, but yeah. uh, maybe basically a, a bad property in a bad neighborhood, but it's still got tremendous cash flow, but it's going to be a lot of problems. Or how do, how about I just go buy good businesses at a reasonable cost and then just live off of that for the rest yeah. of the, the remaining couple of decades. So yes, perfect. Then. Uh, our third one is what are you most proud of in your life? Um, I would think, um, I mean, being a lifelong entrepreneur is something that I look back on and sometimes I take it for granted, but, uh, when none of my friends have done it, really, I don't really have friends other than my brother that's an entrepreneur. Um, it's something that, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're pretty proud of yourself to, you know, to it's, it's a, it's a, it's quite a thing to take something that's not making money and have it make money and sign your own paycheck. Yeah. We have a, a neighbor in our neighborhood and hopefully she's listening to this who, loves sourdough right and loves cooking sourdough and she started doing these sourdough workshops at her house where she'll bring five people in the neighborhood and like teach them how to do that and she's she was disappointed going into her first one that only four people signed up and i'm like what are you talking about you have four people who you've never met in your life coming to pay you money to do something you love to do and to teach about Mm -hmm. how awesome and fulfilling is that right there forget about the money forget about scale are you going to be a billionaire from it probably not but isn't that pretty cool that you made something out of nothing and people paid you for it yeah especially something you love because that's those things all the things you said it's very difficult to put together and for most people yep yep our fourth and last one is if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone dead or alive who would it be and why i would say benjamin franklin i just think it'd be very interesting he had a very interesting life um and uh, someone that started really with nothing and uh, was able to kind of really get financial freedom and do what he really wanted to do which was inventing and politics and uh, everything that'd be in between and womanizing over in france but yeah, we'll in between that part out <laughs> Well, Charles, fantastic conversation. I appreciate you coming on. Um, If our listeners wanted to reach out to you, learn more about what you've got at Harborside Partners, where are the best places we can point them? Yeah, harborsidepartners.com has all of our links to everything. So if you're interested in actively or passively investing in real estate, I have all types of information on there. Um, Got a podcast we put out twice weekly. Matt was on the podcast and YouTube channel, everything. So anything interested about multifamily investing, come on over to our website and uh, tons of free information. Awesome. We will link those in the show notes. And then Charles, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Matt. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.